So we're starting a new sermon series today, and we're calling it Mountaintop Moments. So it's a seven-week series that's going to provide us with an overview of the Old Testament. And so uh, it's difficult to approach the Old Testament sometimes. It's very old literature that was written thousands of years ago. It tells the history of the Jewish people, which happens to be our history as well as Christians. And it spans thousands and thousands of years. And when you pick up the Old Testament, it doesn't actually move necessarily in chronological order. So all those books of the Old Testament are sometimes jumbled up in chronological order. Um, They're hard to read. There's lots of lists of names. It's talking about places you're not familiar with. So there are a lot of hurdles that lay before us as we try to engage with God's word in the Old Testament. So the first, you know, three quarters of the book. And so what we want to do is make the Old Testament a little bit more accessible, a little bit more understandable, and see God's truth shining through, through some moments in the Old Testament. So it's hard to summarize in seven weeks, uh, thousands of years of history and all these pages in our Bible. So we've decided to frame it up around mountaintop moments. And as you read through the Bible, what you notice is that there are many times which God chooses to reveal himself or to interact with people in a unique and special way that we should pay attention to, literally on the top of a mountain. So that's what we're doing. We're saying, like, okay, here are seven mountains in the nation of Israel, and here is what happened on those mountaintops, and here's how it's significant to the story of the Bible. Now, to give some work cited, I got this idea from an organization called Walk Through the Bible, which is a great organization. You can Google them. They have a series called Old Testament Panoramic, and they have seven mountaintops as well. So if you're looking for something you can do on your phone or at home, you can Google Walk Through the Bible Old Testament Panoramic and have a complimentary resource. So I think we have a slide that shows you the seven mountains that we're going to look at together. It's a picture of the Middle East with Egypt and Israel. I think we have it, but maybe we don't. Okay, that's a good slide. Nope. There you go. Thank you. So, uh, this is a strangely stretched image that shows the Sinai Peninsula. At the bottom is Mount Sinai. Uh, We'll talk about that mountain next week. Up into the upper right of the photo that you're seeing, you'll see mountains like Mount Carmel, Mount Tabor, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, and Mount Nebo. I'm particularly eager to preach about Mount Nebo because I go there almost every day. So maybe it will be helpful to all of us. Um, Have any of you ever been to Israel. Raise your hand if you've been to the country of Israel. Okay, so there's just a few of us. What I would really like to do, it's like my bucket list while I'm here, is to organize a trip for us all to go together. That would be really cool. Um, I was there my sophomore year of college. So my sophomore year of college, I found a program where I could work and study and travel in Israel. And so I did that for nine months my sophomore year of college. So I've been to some of these locations. I think we might even have a picture of that. Oh, look at that. Look how full it was. It was just, man. Okay. I can look at it later, I guess. Um, I only say that to go down that road just to say if you've never been to Israel, maybe you've seen pictures, but what we want to establish is that uh, these mountains aren't the Rocky Mountains. And so these are, these are more like hills. Uh, they're not giant mountains that we're going to be talking about. But nevertheless, they're referred to as mountains in the scriptures. And we call Mount Washington a mountain. And 
Um, it's, it pales in comparison to the Rockies as well. Um, the Mount Moriah that we're going to talk about today is at 2,400 feet above sea level. So just to give you a little bit of comparison, I have a map of, of the Pittsburgh topography. That's the topography of Israel. Thank you. Yes. Mount Moriah that we're talking about today is just to the left of the Dead Sea, just to the west there. That reddish, orangish section um, is the Moriah mountain range, and Mount Moriah is what we're going to talk about. To compare it to Pittsburgh, we have a Pittsburgh topography to show you as we sit today at 1,132 feet uh, above sea level. So Mount Moriah is another 1,000 feet higher than we are today, to give you a little context to the mountaintop that we're going to be on. Um, Mount Washington, just to give us some comparisons, is only 365 feet above sea level. Do you realize that? Like, we are significantly higher than Mount Washington right now, but nobody travels here to have the vista, right? Um, But Mount Washington is a pretty small mountain. I saw this headline this week. It was from March. I'm researching to prepare this sermon. The headline is, Mount Washington in Pittsburgh named a top mountain climbing destination. So, new research has revealed that Mount Washington in Pittsburgh is America's sixth favorite mountain climbing destination. So here's how they got the information. They did a study from a family vacation site, a family destinations guide analyzed Instagram hashtags, TripAdvisor ratings, and TripAdvisor reviews of 600 mountainous destinations in America to assign every mountain a peak score to reveal the best mountain climbing destination in the country. Mount Rainier is number one, and number six is Mount Washington. So, uh, anyways, that's funny. I like to imagine mountain climbers arriving and being like, I guess, I guess we don't need the ropes. <laughs> yeah, take the incline. Mountaintop moments. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 22 today to scale Mount Moriah. And I think uh, we also have a picture of what Mount Moriah looks like today. So I think it's at, after the slides of uh, Genesis 22. This is what Mount Moriah looks like today. If you were to go to Israel today and you pick up your Bible to look at Genesis 22, it's going to look something like that. So it's, it's uh, blurry if you were to look at it today a bit, but we can fix that. But that's the mountain. Now, as we read Genesis chapter 22, we have to go back thousands of years and realize that this mountain wouldn't have a single building on it. It would have been all natural. It would have been undeveloped thousands of years ago as we approach Mount Moriah. So in Genesis 22, as we approach Mount Moriah today, let's give a little bit of context. So we're 22 chapters into the Bible. What has happened already? Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve eat the fruit. The curse of sin comes into the world. Well, that curse of sin affects the world in some really bad ways, and the world becomes so evil that God has to flood the world, right? Noah's ark saves Noah and his family. The waters recede. Noah and his family restart the work of creation of filling the earth with his family. As they do, they decide not to scatter and fill the earth. They decide to just hang out in one spot and build a tall tower to try and get to God, the Tower of Babel. God says, that's not what I told you to do. I'm going to confuse your languages. So I'm going to insert all these different languages so that you'll scatter and fill the earth. And so the people scatter out and fill the earth. Once they do that, though, God says, Abraham, Abraham, it's your family that I'm going to bless the world through. And so in these chapters of Genesis, he, in chapter 12 specifically, he promises Abraham, he says, I'm going to take your family 
And through your family, I'm going to bless the entire world through your children and their children and their children. And so it's also important to note in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That promise that God gave to Abraham that through Abraham's lineage, the whole world would be blessed. We should read that as a promise of Jesus who was to come. Abraham believed that and it was counted to him as righteousness. But what happened was Abraham turned 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80 and 90 and had no children until he gets to be the age of 100. And then at that point, Jesus or God gives Abraham a son. And so the son grows up and we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 22. His son has grown. Finally, the promise of God can be fulfilled to Abraham. And this is what it says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand on the fire and the knife and so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they were both went together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and I have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So as we look at this story, there's three things I want us to, to remember as we walk away from it, and that is that we should, like Abraham, listen and respond. We should look and find, and we should trust and obey. So those are our three points we're going to look at. Listen and respond, look and find, trust and obey. So first, listen and respond. Abraham was really good at listening to God when he spoke. That's how the story begins. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. God speaks. Abraham's listening. He's good at listening and responding. He responds and says, here I am. 
Again, in verse 10, at the pinnacle, the climax of the story, Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He's good at listening. Now, I don't know how God spoke to Abraham. I hear Christians say that God spoke to them. People always are saying, if you're around Christians, God told me, God spoke to me, God showed me. And we don't really know sometimes what those words mean. Uh, we, I don't think to this day I've heard the audible voice of God. Um, but people say that they have, which is wonderful. And Abraham probably did hear the voice of God in his ears, but we don't know. But we know that whatever that word listen means, Abraham was good at it. Whether he was listening with his heart or with his ears or with his mind, he was listening for God and he could hear him. And whenever he heard God calling, his response was, here I am. A simple response, and yet I think really beautiful, right? That simple here I am communicates, I think, humility. It communicates openness, willingness, like availability. Here I am. And as a parent, I can say, like, that's really all I'm looking for a lot of the times when I yell up the stairs. I just want to know if you're there, right? Rosie, Henry, Violet. Rosie. Rosie. I go up the stairs. There she is. I'm like, you know, did you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> just a here I am. That's all I'm looking for is just a here I am. Anyway, it communicates this availability, this willingness. But what is God calling Abraham to do? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So we should pause and appreciate the fact that to our modern Western ears, this sounds barbaric and horrific. It's hard for us to imagine that God would ever communicate this message to anyone. So let's talk about that for just a moment. One thing to keep in mind is we should all read the Bible with a level of humility and recognize that we are Westerners that live in 2023. And we are not people that live in the ancient Near East thousands and thousands of years ago. And so sometimes when we read the Bible, it does sound very strange to us, but it wouldn't necessarily have sounded as strange to them. And so the time and the culture is very different. Sacrifice is very common to build an altar and to give a sacrifice. Now, <clears throat> child sacrifice is not common at all. It's not ever prescribed within Christianity or within Judaism. However, within the broader culture in the ancient Near East, child sacrifice was a thing. Actually, in, in, in Exodus twenty two twenty nine, just a few more pages in our Bibles forward, God will say to the nation of Israel, he'll say, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Now, the application of that was not as a sacrifice on an altar, but God was speaking to the people and saying, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And what God was saying in that culture and at that time, what they would have heard is, all of what you have belongs to me. Everything you have belongs to me. Now, when we hear your firstborn sons belong to me, that's not what we hear. It's because we live in a different time and a different culture. We live in a culture that's highly individualistic. So we are motivated by our own happiness and our own success and our own significance. But if you go back into the ancient Near East, that is not what motivated the culture there. They were motivated not by personal and individual things, but by the family's success, family loyalty, family love, and happiness. And so you have to remind yourself, like, okay, they had no um, country. They were a nomadic people 
traveling through the ancient Middle East. So there was no country that had laws. There was no like human rights. There were no like written down freedoms. There was no rules for land ownership. So what you had was you had your family, you had your clan. And so what was really important was your firstborn son. Because everything that you have is gonna pass down from you to your firstborn son. Why? So that the family can continue to develop its power and its safety and its security within the land. If I were to pass everything that I have to Henry and exclude Rosie and Violet from the will, you'd think like, how, how barbaric, like how awful. But it's just the culture has changed. We have rights and freedoms and land ownership and all of these things so that we don't follow the same firstborn rules that they did back in the ancient Near East. But when God says in Exodus 22, 20, 29, your firstborn sons belong to me, he's saying, if you're with me, if I'm your God, then it's all on the table. I want all of you. I want your possessions, I want your loves, I want everything. So if you want to follow me, you're all in with me. And so when God asks Abraham to do this, it's his one and only son whom he loves. God is calling Abraham to give him everything. His love, his treasure, everything he's built up to this point in his life, God wants all of it from Abraham. And so Abraham listens and responds. He says, here I am. He loads up his donkey. He gathers two servants and Isaac, and he loads up the wood for the fire, for the sacrifice, and he heads out to Moriah. So the application. The application for us is, is we should listen and respond. We should listen and respond. Now, if you've been around Christians for a while, then you may have noticed this in our Christianese. Like I already said, God's calling me. God told me. It's like a trump card we can play at any time we want, right? Well, I want to go to Applebee's. Well, God told me we should go to Taco Bell. He told me. So how are you going to argue with that? You can't. You can't claim God doesn't talk to me, right? So it's like a trump card that we can play. However, having said that, God communicates to us. God calls us in ambiguous ways that are spiritual and not actually physical. That does happen, and those are hard to discern. But let's talk about what's easier to discern. God, according to Scripture, is calling us to salvation. That we can prove from Scripture. God has called us to salvation. We can use that language. How should I respond to God? What should I be listening for? You should be listening for His voice that is calling you to salvation. We live in a time in which people are oftentimes pursuing happiness and peace and fulfillment in life, and they're finding it very difficult to find those things. It seems like they evade us. Whether we're rich or poor, blue collar or white collar, we seem to battle shame and loneliness, and we are seeking after like fulfillment and love to be known and to be valued have significance and purpose. We want to be happy. We want to have lives to the fullest, but a lot of people, it seems to be evading them. And you can look at statistics on the, on the rates of loneliness and sadness and our desire to find some fulfillment. And listen, if that is you or if there's people around you, what you should be hearing from God is this, 1 Peter 2.9, you have been called out of darkness and into light. You should be hearing Jesus calling you from Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. 
You should be hearing Jesus calling to you and saying from John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and that you might have life to the fullest. That's what God is calling us to. That's what he's calling our friends and our family to, your coworkers. He's calling all of us to salvation, to come into the light, to come into the fullest life possible. And he wants us to respond in faith. That's how God is calling you. How will you respond? For many of us in this room, you've already responded in faith, which is wonderful. Here's another one that I can give you. Absolutely. I don't know if God's called you and told you where to eat lunch today, but God has called you and told you that you ought to obey him, that you ought to obey his word. He's called you, and he's actually said in his word that he's called you to generosity. He's called you to share your faith. He's called you to support the weak and to bear one another's burdens. He's called you to make disciples. He's called you to love one another. And the question for us is, how will we respond? How will we respond to the clear call of God on our lives as Christians? Moses' response was this. Here I am. Bear one another's burdens. Okay. I'll load up the donkey. I'll get the things. And I'll head out in the direction of bearing one another's burdens. Right? We listen and we respond. And then we look and we find. So we look and find. So in Genesis 22, I've read this story a number of times uh, over the years. And it's one of the, they say it's one of the most well-written, best-told stories in all the Bible. And as you read it again and again and again, different things come out to you and, and shine in different ways. And this time as I was reading it, I just couldn't help but seeing the word place. The word place is in verse 3, verse 4, verse 9, and verse 14. Abraham is leaving and going and looking for a place. He is looking for where this place is. If you paid attention, it said in verse 2, God sends Abraham to the land of Moriah, to one of the mountains which I will tell you. This is the second time in Abraham's life where God has talked to him and said, listen, just go and I'll show you where. Well, where? Just, just go and I'll show you where. And so Abraham is looking. He's looking, which mountain is it? It says in verse 3, he went to the place which God had told him. Well, what place is that? On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And when they came to the place which God had told them in verse 8, and then in verse 14, he names the place the Lord will provide. So he heads out that day with his donkey and his servants and his son, and they say to him, where are we going? He says, we're going to Moriah. And Moriah is like a whole region of mountaintops. And they say, which one? And he says, I don't know. We're going to look and find Now, we think Abraham probably traveled about 60 miles. And so, 60 miles would be like traveling from Pittsburgh to the Laurel Highlands. So, it would be like I said today, why don't you go home and grab a donkey, and we'll head to the Laurel Highlands, to a mountain that I'll show you. And you'd say, well, the Laurel Highlands is full of mountains. And God says, yeah, yeah, I'll show you the one. And so, you go, and you look, and you find... Abraham is also obviously looking for the lamb. The application for us is to look and to find. I don't know what this looks like in your life or in my life. It's, it's hard to understand. It's a bit abstract. But the life of following God and his call is a life that can be frustrating. Where we don't know where to go and we don't, we're looking and we're not seeing it, Right? It should be frustrating. Oftentimes in our walk of faith, we feel lost. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. So it's actually even harder 
It's actually like we're blind people who are called to look and find. So yeah, you're blind, so now go to the land that I will show you. And so we're just feeling around, and it's scary, and we feel lost, and we feel disoriented, and God is calling us and saying, go to the land that I will show you. Say, I'm blind, and God says, yeah, walk by faith. And so it's natural and normal for the Christian life to feel frustrating and for us to at times feel lost. Because what happens when you get lost? You stop and ask for a direction, don't you? And so God in his infinite wisdom knows that's how we operate. And so he sends us out to look and to find and to live lives that are dependent upon him. And so when Jesus was here on the earth, he said in Matthew 7, 7, seek and you will find. Look and you will find. So I believe each, God is calling each of us to salvation, like I said. So we should listen to that call and we should respond in faith. And then we should look and we should find. We should move. We should take steps of faith. We should load up the donkey and we should head out. We can't just listen and respond. Oh, I hear you, God. Yes, I'm saved. That's great. And here I sit. No, you listen and you responded in faith. Now let's go and let's look and let's find where God is calling you to go. You read his word, you see that he's calling you to, right, to whatever it is, stop gossiping, to use your tongue to build people up and not put people down. So all of that, well, I'm just going to read it and then believe it's true. No, 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 you need to move. You need to move. You need to look where you can apply that and you need to find those places of application. I don't know what God is calling you to, but we should be people who are listening and I don't know where he's sending you, but we should be people who are actively trying to find where it is that God is sending us. Moriah is in that direction. And we move forward in a frustrating pace and often feel lost. But we are committed to people who will seek and find. You and I can live compelling lives, compelling stories of faith. We can. It's just going to require us to take these radical steps of faith that look foolish to head out in a direction I don't know where I'm going to head up a mountain without the lamb for sacrifice and yet it's a compelling story that's been moving people for thousands of years so the compelling story of your life is going to be written as you take these steps of faith that don't seem to make much sense but they communicate to God that you're listening and you're looking and your heart is, is pursuit of God I heard this story at a conference uh, last year, and I, I, I've repeated it a number of times, maybe to some of you. But here's how this little made-up story goes. There's this young man sitting in his room, and he's praying, and he's reading Scripture, and his heart is for God. And he senses God telling him that he should leave his room and go out. So he's like, okay, I don't know where I'm going, but I, I leave my room, and I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm trying to follow God in my faith. And he senses that God wants him to go into this diner. So he goes down and he sits in this diner and there he sits. And he orders a coffee and he's sitting there and he's waiting and hours are going by. Meanwhile, up in heaven, God turns to the sun and says, what's going on with that young man down there? And Jesus says to God the Father, I don't know. I mean, he thinks we told him to go to a diner. Did did you tell him to go to a diner? I didn't tell him to go to a diner. Holy Spirit, did you tell him to go to a diner? I didn't tell him to go to the diner. God the Father looks down and he smiles and he says, I like this one. We can, we can use this one. And so I don't know, maybe it feels foolish sometimes. Maybe you're not even sure 
it's the voice of God, but you just take those steps. I think God the Father looks down and he says, oh, what a spirit. What a willingness and a desire to be used by me. We can use this one to do great things. So we listen and we respond. We look and we find and we trust and we obey. And this is the most important part. Verses 6 to 14. This is where the action of the story really slows down. And we get this moment-by-moment story. So as it says in verse 6, or I'm sorry, in verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. Now listen to this. This is the most important part. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham trusted and obeyed. He trusted that God would keep his promise to bless him and his whole family. It's his only son. But Abraham says to his servants, me and the boy will be back. You see, his trust was in the goodness and the, and the love and the kindness of his God. He trusted that God keeps his promises. He trusted, too, that God, in his character, would never have me slaughter my own son. So he says to his servants, the boy and I, we will be back. You see, his trust in God is in the character of God, and he can't waver from that trust. The boy and I will be back. He trusted, and he obeyed. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, and Abraham says, here I am, my son, behold or the son, Isaac, says to him, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham's faith is so beautiful. He tells Isaac, God, God will provide. God will provide. I get it. This looks foolish, Isaac. I get it. What we're doing doesn't make any sense. All I can tell you is that God calls and I respond in faith. And then I take steps and I look and he shows me. And so if we could look together, God's going to provide the lamb. So they went, both of them together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar and laid the wood on it and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And it's the climax of the story. As we listen, we look on and we're like, no, it certainly can't. I have to look away. There's no way that he would do it. And then the angel of the Lord calls them from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. Thank God Abraham is good at listening He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered as a burnt offering instead of his son. Thank God Abraham is good at looking. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on that mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The hero of this story isn't Abraham. The story actually isn't about Abraham's faith. The hero of the story is that God will provide. That's the point. As Abraham heads out from home, what does he say? Well, where are you going? The land of Moriah. Well, where? I don't know. The Lord will provide. 
He starts heading up the mountain. Where's the sacrifice? The Lord will provide. So what should we name the mountain? The mountain of Abraham's faith. It doesn't sound right. The mountain of Abraham's obedience. It doesn't sound right either. We'll call it the Lord will provide because that's the point. And the word provide there, well, that was originally written in Hebrew. And that word in Hebrew actually means he sees. The Lord sees what we cannot see. So with that in mind, it's interesting how that affects the story. Abraham knows that the command of God that he is obeying defies the promise of God that he is trusting, and he cannot see how God can show grace and justice. Abraham can't see how God has called him to this and how God will work it all out. He just can't see it. He can't see how God can be a God of grace and a God of justice simultaneously. Abraham can't see it. He knows he must obey. He knows that God can't break a promise. But God, Abraham can't see it. Abraham also can't see at the first moment the ram that is caught in the thicket behind him. Abraham can't, also cannot see that thousands of years from now, perhaps on this very same mountain, God the Father will put the wood on his son and he will walk up the mountain with his son so that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world will be sacrificed on Mount Moriah. That's what Abraham can't see. But you and I can see it. And thank God Abraham followed and he obeyed and he trusted. And now we can look back at this and see what a beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus and his sacrifice that is yet to come. What a beautiful reminder that when we can't understand what we're hearing and we don't understand what we're seeing, but we still believe and we still obey, what a beautiful picture that is for each of us. So as we look at what this story means for us today, it means when you can't see the end and when you can't understand and when you feel like all hope is lost, the application is trust and obey. Trust and obey. It's how we're to live our lives. It's simple, but it is profound. Do you trust that God will provide for you? Are you willing to sacrifice everything as you trust and obey him? I hope that you have a mountaintop moment similar to this one in your life's story. I, think you, I hope you can look back on your life and be like, at that moment, I trusted and obeyed and I couldn't see the outcome. And maybe that's your salvation story. Or maybe it's just a tremendous story about how God filled you with peace that passed all understanding. Or maybe it's a story of how God filled you in the midst of your emptiness or how he provided a way forward when you couldn't see a way. But hopefully each of us can look back on our past and say, like, that was a mountaintop moment for me when the Lord provided. If you look back on your story and you don't have them, then here's what we need to do together. We need to start listening and responding in faith. And we need to start taking these scary steps of faith. And when we don't see where we're headed, we need to trust and obey God in our lives going forward. And we too will have these stories. I mentioned Ron Stokel at the beginning who passed away this week. I don't know if we have a, a picture of him for the screens or not. That was him on Monday. Our friend Ron. He lived his life this way. For the last number of years, he battled COPD diabetes, and various other health issues. First, they took his toe. 
And then they took his foot. And then they took his leg. And then they took his other leg. And if you would have asked Ron at any one of those moments, what's going on? He would have told you, we got to trust God. We just have to trust God. He's like, why would God allow this person to go through so much suffering? And Ron himself would look you in the eye and say, all we have is our trust in God. And he trusted and he obeyed. You know how some of his obedience was demonstrated? He was called to share his faith, and he shared it with everyone. God called him and said, share your faith. And I bet you Ron had every right to say, like, "Uh, God, you took my legs. Here I am. So God started bringing people into his hospital room or into his house. And so God would bring the people to Ron, and Ron would share his faith with every single person that walked into his room. He would tell each and every one of them, I trusting in God. Are you trusting in him? Perhaps you think it's a strange illustration of God's provision because Ron died on Friday. So how is that a story of God providing? Because in Ron's final days, he struggled to sustain consciousness. So I was talking to Peggy on Thursday. She said, uh, she said yesterday, sleeping all day, um, Peggy said, I was talking to the doctor about his end-of-life care. And Ron had a moment, and he sits up in bed, he opens his eyes, and he says, I am at peace, and I am joyful. And then he went back to sleep. And it was some of his last words that he clearly spoke. And so the Lord provides. The Lord provides. The Lord provides even in the midst of our suffering. And the Lord provides. Ron is in heaven. And all the promises of God are being fulfilled to Ron. Ron is hearing the Lord so clearly for the first time. And he is seeing things so clearly for the first time. And he is experiencing the Lord's provision like none of us can even imagine. So there is so much in this life we don't understand. And there is so much in this life that we cannot see. But we listen and we look and we trust and we obey. And just like Abraham, God is leading us to a mountaintop. And the name of that mountaintop is the Lord will provide. And in the past, he provided a savior. And in the present, he is providing you with peace and with joy. And in the future, he will provide for you everything you could ever imagine. The Lord will provide.